Hello, and welcome to EU Today, a podcast from the Center for European Studies, a Jean Monnet Center of Excellence at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Thank you to the Erasmus Plus program of the European Commission, the EU delegation to the U.S., and the U.S. Department of Education for supporting our center and its programs. On this podcast, we sit down with scholars and policy leaders to discuss pressing issues facing the European Union. We hope you enjoy it. Our first guest on the show is Dr. Kieran Klaus-Patel, Professor and Chair of European and Global History at Maastricht University. Professor Patel visited UNC to give a public lecture entitled The Making of a European Alternative, Cooperation and Integration in Western Europe After 1945. On the podcast, we dive into challenges of European integration from a historical perspective and learn about the legacy of 20th century German institutions. Interviewing Dr. Patel is Stephanie Shady, UNC PhD candidate in political science. So thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. Um, and so you are a historian of European history, um, German history, um, and you gave us last night a great talk about um, how the European integration has changed over time, um, how it's evolved, and some of the reasons behind that. Um, and so you pointed out that this is not the first time that European countries have wrestled with questions of continental unity um, or how integrated economically, politically, that they should be. Um, and you discuss this in your 2018 book, Project Europa. Um, and so how do you view the present day Euroscepticism in light of this history? Um, should we be worried that this current trend is remarkably different from the past, or is it a continuation of the same? Right. I think it's a little bit of both, as so often. So there are also kind of early periods where mm -hmm. there had been quite a good level of contestation and conflict over European integration. So if you go back to the 1950s and 60s, the choice for Europe, to use Anna Merfrick's term, wasn't clear to everybody. So there was also people who hoped that the empires that most West European countries had set up would be the way forward. And there was, on the other hand, also strong communist parties. For instance, in France and Italy, 20 to 30% of people voting for those. So those kind of groups uh, were quite skeptical of European integration. Having said that, I think we are now living also in very different times because there is a new level of mass mobilization against European integration, which wasn't really so much visible in earlier periods. So there were moments of discontent and many people accepted, or I should rather say tolerated European integration more, that they really supported it. But now we have new parties who really want to change the European Union from within, or really want to leave the EU, um, as for instance we see with Brexit. Great, yes. Um, and so, um, in light of this, how can we take this history and knowledge that this is not the first time, but maybe perhaps the first time we're seeing this level of mass mobilization, um, what can we do as EU citizens or as external observers in the US of these European politics, how can we think about this history as we evaluate our stances towards European integration today? I think from the perfect perspective of history, we first need to get a better understanding of what that history is all about. Because I think to this day we have rather simplistic accounts of the by now seven decades of European integration history. On the one hand, there is a very pro-EU story, which is that it did create peace and prosperity and that it was quite, quite straightforward the solution to many of the problems of the time. And on the other hand, you have the alternative interpretation where all the blame is basically put on European integration. And I think, and this is also what I'm trying to do with my book, to 
produce and to present a balanced account that really tries to show what European integration was not so much doing at the level of negotiations and international politics, but what it brought to people in the member states and also beyond. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned last night um, several institutions that sort of get ignored in the classic story of EU integration and that um, path from the coal and steel community up to the EU that um, even as a political scientist focused on Euro the European Union, I wasn't very aware of um, just because we are so focused on contemporary periods. Um, so it was really interesting to see all these other institutions that could have made it into that story that we hear today. Um, I thought that was very interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and so. Apart from European integration, you've also mm -hmm. written quite a bit about um, Nazism mm -hmm. and the rise of um, these parties in the context of um, concerns about social welfare um, and response, looking for responses <clears throat> to that. Um, so looking today, we've seen um, quite a number of these radical nationalist parties, some ascribing to parts of Nazism themselves, um, such as the Alternative for Germany and Fidesz in Hungary. Um, do you see any parallels in sort of the reasons um, that these parties are emerging um, historically um, in the time of Nazism and today? Um, right. And what are some key differences between then and now? I think there's always also there, there is differences and similarities. Um, there have been, we are now just at the end of a long period of economic problems and kind of depression in many European countries, also in the United States. And that certainly has also impacted on political discussions. So the new level of populism, I think, that we see in many Western countries certainly has to do with these economic developments. But that is not the only thing. <clears throat> and I think the EU is only one object, um, kind of, of criticism of these organizations. If you look at uh, Turkey, uh, India, or other countries that are obviously not part of the EU, you also get the right of rise of these rightist populist parties. So in that sense, I think, um, also that there is a broader story to be told. What I find interesting is that um, in the 1930s, some of these rightist parties, because you mentioned social policies, mm -hmm. were also, advance is not the right word, but really pushing for certain kind of social policies that also led to new forms of integration. Nazi Germany is a very interesting example in this context because we, of course, and rightly so, remember the um, persecution and invasion of, of Jews, but on the other hand, the Nazis also created an in-group, the Volksgenossen, as they were called in Nazi terminology, i.e. the Aryan part of the population for which there were new offerings, social welfare benefits. And that was certainly part of the attraction of the regime. And what we see now in these parties in Poland, Hungary and elsewhere, and I don't want to say that they're exactly the same like Nazi, um, the Nazi party, is that some of them also use that kind of approach that they offer, for instance, the PiS party in Poland, new welfare benefits, um, kind of old age pensions, for instance, for parts of the population to also win more support with their populist policies. This is not across the board. Um, the AfD in Germany, for instance, is quite undecided about its social policy and quite vague to this day what its social policy should be. Um, it started out from a very neoliberal position mm -hmm. and it is now moving into all kinds of directions and the party is split in different fractions anyway, so it's still to be seen what kind of approach they will take there. Yes, definitely. I know there are a couple scholars um, out at Chapel Hill who talk about um, the extent to which these parties are forced to or not take positions on sort of this dimension of contestation that they're not thinking about yet. So um, if they emerge as a nationalist party, maybe they can ignore economic policy for a time, right. um, but eventually they're sort of right. 
cornered into making a decision, um, taking and a position. I think that is also good that um, existing parties mm -hmm. push them hard to also be clear on what they would want on key policy choices that easy answers can't be all you, you get from these parties. And again, unfortunately, I should also say, while they gain support and also are able to build up big party structures like IFD, for instance, they're also able to define their policies more. So it's on the one hand good that they're being called in and have to say what they want. But on the other hand, I think there might also be parallels to certain developments from the interval years there. Yes, definitely. Um, so in light of the role of Nazism clearly causing divisions among European countries um, with the World War, um, what do today's emerging nationalist parties um, do to pose challenges to the European integration projects? Um, and is there anything that European leaders or the public can learn from the lessons of contestation against um, European closeness that might help them surmount these challenges today? Mm -hmm. I think firstly what we've seen over the past five or so years is that quite a few of these populist parties are not openly anti-EU anymore. And mm -hmm. I think this is also reflects to Brexit, um, because before there was in the Netherlands and in quite a few other countries, the debate of also leaving the European Union. As an effect of Brexit and also kind of the level of contestation within the United Kingdom, I think quite a few of these kind of political parties on the right particularly have decided to say, well, we want to stay in, but we want to change the EU from within. Mm -hmm. So you see that with Orban's Fidesz party, you see that with Matteo Salvini in Italy, you see that with quite a few of these others. And in that sense, the European Parliament elections in May will be very important because I think what we'll see is more and more parties who want to remain part of the of the project of the European Union, but change it from within to towards a more sovereignist, as some of them would call it, mm -hmm. um, direction. So in that sense, that is a somewhat new di direction, and also one where there isn't a clear parallel to the interwar years, because there wasn't an international forum, a body, organization of similar strength to the EU today. So what you had is the League of Nations, but that was, even if we now think that it was more important than we've thought long, um, a comparably weak organization. So in that sense, I think also sometimes things are working out in new and different contexts, and history doesn't have a real quick answer for you there. Yeah, definitely. It's sort of interesting, um, mm -hmm. maybe as a, a place of optimism, that at least they want to work within the European institutions, that there's sort of a norm that that is the way to conduct policy, even if it might not be a policy that every part of the public agrees with. Um, and I wanted to pick up on something interesting you mentioned, that these parties are not always taking this anti-EU position. Um, in um, the Chapel Hill Expert Survey, which studies mm -hmm. these different parties um, in Europe, we see pretty low correlations of um, anti-EU integration and anti-immigration or other pro-nationalist policies. Um, so it's not as um, clear-cut as one might think on the surface, that there is a lot of variation there, which I think is very interesting. I fully agree with you, and I think also what we've seen that we had a time when the European political systems have been quite stable mm -hmm. and they've become immensely volatile over recent years. Yes. So also the positions of parties, of movements, mm -hmm. changes quite quickly, quite rapidly. That makes that research all the more interesting and important because coalitions and positions will change so rapidly that one really needs to know where these different organizations and parties actually stand. Yes, absolutely. And it's important to keep track of the changes over time. Um, so you also talked a little bit about um, 
U.S. and European relations last night in your talk. Um, and last year you published a book called Nazism Across Borders, The Social Policies of the Third Reich and Their Global um, Appeal, which was an edited volume. Um, and this book discussed ways that the Nazi party in Germany exported parts of their social mm -hmm. policy um, and their model kind of worldwide. Um, so could you share some of the core themes of that book? What were your key takeaways from it? Sure, happy to. I, first, I'd like to say that this is an edited volume, as you just said, that I did with uh, Sandrine Cott, um, a Swiss Frank scholar who is based at the University of Geneva and NYU at the moment. And with Sandrine, um, I'm part of a group of historians who's working on the history of the German Ministry of Labor under Nazism, on different kinds of policies that the Nazis did. Sandrine and I felt that it's very important to also look at the international dimensions of Nazi policy. Why? Because the German Kaiserreich, already since the 1870s, had been propagating its social policy as an international model. So these are these Bismarck reforms on all kinds of insurance schemes that the Nazis also capitalized on and where they added their own brand of social policies. And it is interesting to see that against the background of the Great Depression, quite a few countries were really interested in what the Nazis were doing. Not only dictatorships like fascist Italy or Japan, but also, for instance, the United States. Um, and this is also part of my earlier research on the 1930s, was able to show that, for instance, President Roosevelt himself was quite interested in Nazi social policies and asked for reports about them. That is quite interesting. I had never really thought about that. Okay, um, and so clearly this is an example of sort of a different side of a very nationalist party that we don't often see looking at, um, looking back in history. Right. Um, so right. with these new nationalist parties increasingly starting to at least inch their way into European governments, albeit not necessarily the majority, um, are there any responses that you might anticipate from other countries in Europe? Are there other countries um, where there are parties learning from these new nationalist parties? I think what we see is that quite a few of these new nationalist parties work together. Again, Steve Bannon, as we also know, yes. plays a certain role in this and has said publicly that he wants to play a role in the um, kind of cooperation amongst these parties mm -hmm. in the run-up for the European Parliament elections. We still have to see how powerful that's going to be, but we see something that was also happening in the 1920s and 30s that also very rightist nationalist parties can work together. Mm -hmm and form coalitions. So in that sense, I think there we need to watch that very carefully and see how they would come together. At this stage, if you talk about the European Parliament, it is interesting that these parties are split over various of these political families. Mm -hmm. So Orban's um, party, Fidesz, is still part of the Conservative Party group. Right. And just over the past few days, there was intense conflict over that very fact due to his mm -hmm. strong criticism of um, Commission President Juncker. Um, but that is very interesting. So you could say they're split, and that could be seen as an advantage because that weakens them, but mm -hmm. you could also say they become ever more influential because they're spread all over the system. That is, I think, right. a very interesting tendency that we have to watch further. Yes, absolutely. It's sort of interesting that they can um, maybe export a few tactics or a few positions from a platform into more traditional mainstream conservative parties. And that is what we've seen already over the past years on migration issues and other questions. Yes, <coughs> absolutely, especially in Germany. Hmm. Um, great. Well, thank you so much for answering all of these questions. Um, are there any final takeaways or thoughts that you really want listeners um, in the public or in schools to understand about European integration from um, a more historical perspective that you want people to take away? 
I think that from an American point of view, it's sometimes very difficult to understand what the EU actually is. Yes. And um, I share that point fully. It is very difficult. And I think Europeans are not always very good in making that clearer mm -hmm. to others. Um, but I think it's a very interesting experience that also um, hopefully will interest Americans more to see where an important partner over those past six, seven, eight decades of post-war history is going to and where future forms of cooperation could actually lie. So also for that reason, I think uh, the, the podcast is great and I wish you good luck with the next steps because this is work and these are discussions that I think we need to have, not only in America, not only in Europe, but also transatlantic. Hey, thank you so much. Yes, we, we really hope this podcast helps um, reach especially um, American audiences that might be less familiar with these topics. Um, I certainly did not have the exposure to European history or contemporary um, institutional study until I got to college. So it's, right. it's really great that we're able to share this information more widely. So thank you so much for sharing it. Again, thank you for bringing me here. Please note that any opinions expressed in the EU Today podcast are solely those of our guests and our hosts and not of the UNC Center for European Studies, which takes no institutional positions. Be sure to tune in for more episodes and subscribe to EU Today wherever you listen to podcasts.